0: Hey, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord with you uh, together as we worship together and just uh, pursue the Lord together um man, I, I just love uh, really just kind of meet and greet time and just to hear just the energy and the vibrancy, especially now that as we're going into uh, the fall, a new season is starting, a new school year, uh, both for those of you that are in college and those of you that uh, have children and, uh, and your kids are going into school or, or if you don't have any of those, uh, just even going into a new season is always something that is always really exciting, at least for me. Uh, I know that the Days are numbered where uh, we're no longer going to have these, this 90 or above degree weather because I typically like to stay within 65, 75 is like the sweet spot. I come alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with, with that said, uh, I, I just, I, I want to... Uh, reiterate even just with what, what Zach mentioned about Vision Sunday coming up, this this Sunday that's coming up. Really just want to encourage you to be here uh, and, and hear what really just kind of the Lord has, uh, what the Lord has deposited into uh, Zach's heart to be able to uh, lead our church in this and forward for this next year and two. I'll say it that way. Uh, So uh, knowing what's coming up ahead, please know that this is so exciting that we would really love for you guys to just make time to be able to not just be here on Sunday, but then also be able to join us in a time of prayer and fasting as we just ask the Lord and plead with the Lord uh, for him to work and to move because this can't be done without him. Amen. Amen. All right. So for those of you that don't know me, I'm uh, Johnny Gonzalez. I'm one of the pastors here at Antioch Dallas, and it is uh, just a great privilege. And I just want to say uh, for those of you that, that just brought meals or just encouraged us and are continually giving us words of encouragement, uh, uh, particularly because we just had our third on June 7th. I got, his, I got his birthday wrong the first time, or at least struggled with it, but I'm glad I hit that one. Uh June 7th, uh, he was born, and so thank you to everyone who just brought meals and sent words of encouragement or sent gift cards or whatever that is. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, So let's hit to it. We're in a series titled Right Side Up, where we are looking at the various parables of Jesus where he's turning the world upside down and setting it right side up with the correct understanding of how we live in God's kingdom. And so today we're going to stay on this theme and we're going to be looking at how Jesus is setting the world right side up. And I'm just going to come right out the gate by saying that he's coming after your heart. So Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 9. So if you would turn your Bibles uh, on your device or if you didn't bring a Bible or don't have one, uh, there is a Bible under the seat in front of you. I would encourage you to use that. And if you don't know what it means to look up Luke 13.1, uh, just look, uh, look up page 847 in and, and that Bible, and you'll be at Luke chapter 13. So Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and this is what it says. Now, there was some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard or the vinekeeper, and he said, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Dear Jesus, we pray during this time together that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts, that you would open our mind, our ears, our understanding, our hearts to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. October 2016, uh, my wife and I bought our first home or our, our only home, for that matter. And during that time, and part of the reason why we wanted to get a home, and we wanted to move from uh, downtown Dallas, the apartment that we were living in, and wanted to get a home was to be able to have a backyard so that we could do things that, um, uh, th- that we were dreaming about. Insert here, uh, things that my wife was dreaming about. <clears throat> Lauren, at that time, asked me for a cheap planter box uh, because she said, I-, I want us to be able to grow our own vegetable garden. Again, insert, I want you to build a a, a planter box so that you can grow the garden and I can enjoy the fruit from it. So what I did is that I went out to uh, Home Depot and I went out and bought cedar wood, wood sealer, a, a handsaw nuts and bolts, and then I borrowed a, a socket wrench uh, from my neighbor. I know that you're probably sitting there and saying, why did you buy hand tools and not power tools? It's because I wanted to be a man, okay? <laughs> because I wanted to stand there and I wanted to show I can build this with my two hands. It doesn't matter how long it's going to take me to take this handsaw through this cedar plank, but I'm going to do it. $260 and two weeks later... We had a planter box, okay? It was put in our backyard. Now, one thing that you need to know is that, is that um, our, our yard, whenever we got the house, I, I just hated the landscaping so much. And, and, and nothing against you. If you love creighton myrtles, listen, uh, we just can't be friends. Uh, we, but but uh, I, I just don't like creighton myrtles. Um, and so there was two in our backyard and we, and so I told one of the guys that was just working on a different yard, Hey, how much would you charge me to get these things out of my backyard? And so it was a fair price. So he went in and cut it down and um, cut it down, down into the stump, covered it with dirt. And so I said, well, in place of this crate and myrtle, I'm going to put this planter, planter box on top of it. Okay. First, let me say this. We had great anticipation that the, the seeds that we planted were going to produce a plentiful harvest of meat, of mint, basil, not meat, mint, basil. I know all the men are like, yeah. Uh, mint, basil, cilantro, rosemary, jalapeno, kale, lettuce, and tomato. All of this in a five by six planter box. And so I didn't realize the amount of trouble it was to actually make these things grow or how much work it was going to go into it. First of all, the trouble. You see, I planted this on top of a, uh, what a creight myrtle used to sit or used to be. And if you know anything about creight myrtles is that it is nearly impossible to kill those things. Um, because what they do is that when you, when you put them down, they, they throw out these shoots and it's basically a, a resurrection that they're trying to, uh, uh, uh come about. And the, so all of these shoots start coming up and it's not even in that concentrated spot. It's everywhere. And so, and so all of a sudden I start seeing these crate and myrtle shoots come up through my planter box that I had meticulously gone and put down all of this. Uh, the, the point is, is that it wasn't supposed to do that. But here's the deal. On June third, twenty seventeen, I, uh, in excitement, I went. I took to Instagram and I posted this picture with the uh, uh, <laughs> with the caption that says, "My first homegrown jalapeno." Hashtag yeah. subdue the earth. Woo! Okay. You see, uh, uh, never mind the cilantro, the mint, the rosemary, or, or kale, or anything, like, uh, nothing like that. This brown guy was able to produce his very first jalapeno, okay? <laughs> you see, I love yard work. I love everything about it, um, uh, except the, the, the tree trimming and the hedges. I don't do that, but, but, but I love to mow the lawn because I want, I love soccer, and I just want my lawn to look like a soccer field, Okay? And after being done with my yard, uh, I'm proud and I feel a sense of accomplishment. So much so that I stand in the front yard with my hands on my hips and I said, "Hashtag subdue the earth! I I did it." <laughs> but in that pride, I was quickened by the Holy Spirit to connect my ability to grow a jalapeno to the cultural mandate. Johnny, what is the cultural mandate? I'm glad you asked. In Genesis 126, God um, makes man in his image. And he says, let us make man in, in, in our image. And then in verse 28, it says that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That is the cultural mandate. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. And then in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. You see, God's purposes for humanity has always been to be fruitful, a fruitfulness resulting from remaining in him. It's an intrinsic part of humanity that puts God's image on display The remaining in him is the power that produces fruit in us. This is, uh, uh, so God's intent in all of this, if you look at the language, it was never that uh, Adam and Eve or humanity should do this alone, but with uh, with a, a full and complete trust and reliance on God. And so this is why Genesis 3 was such a tragic thing because there was a fracture that it didn't negate God's original design and God's purpose for humanity, but it caused a fracture that at its core was a rebellion against God. It was basically man standing up in front of God and saying, I can do this on my own. It was a separation from God. Okay, Johnny, but you're saying uh, that's great. So did that mean that the cultural mandate goes away? The answer to that question is no. Because even after sin, when after the flood and and Noah and his sons come out of the ark, it says that uh, in Genesis 9-1 that then God blessed Noah and his sons saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So the same thing that he said to Adam and Eve in a garden before sin, he's now again reiterating reiterating it to them after sin, and he's telling them the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Then with Abraham, God promised Abram to make him fruitful specifically by making nations out of him. And because of this promise that he made, uh, the people of Israel were, were also fruitful. So he made a, a, a Ishmael and Isaac were also fruitful. And then even when they went into slavery in Egypt, and the Bible says that in Genesis 47, 27, that God caused Israel to be fruitful, even in slavery. But here was the issue, and it, and it continues to be so, that Israel kept rebelling and leaning into their own strength instead of honoring God, not just in action, but also in heart. I remain in him. That even in the midst of their fruitfulness, they took for granted what God was doing and, re, and rebelled from God's original intent, which was for God to be all in all. That to the point that Isaiah, uh, as he was prophesying to captive Israel, he he said that uh, this is God speaking to them. And he said, this people, they draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So it's this idea of of keeping up this appearance and this action uh, that I can have a form of godliness, but I'm denying the power of God. And I'm denying drawing closer to him. So here we come to Luke 13. And in Luke, the pattern of ancient Israel is still alive within this religious life here. We've we've been on this theme of right side up um, for most of the summer. And here, Jesus, and during this series, we've been looking at how Jesus is taking on the misconception uh, that existed of God's kingdom in that day. And then he's taken that misconception and he's uh, uh, turning it upside down and making it right side up again. You see, it, it didn't start in 13. It started in chapter 11 after having shared a meal with the Pharisee and in the Pharisee's house. Okay. Jesus was bad, man. He walks into the Pharisee's house and in the Pharisee's house. He confronts the Pharisee and the teachers of the law by sternly confronting their religious actions and the subsequent condition of their hearts. At one point, he rebukes the teacher of the law and he says, You experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. He's basically saying, You're not practicing what you're preaching. So it is in this condition and in this tension that we get to chapter 13. And instead of heeding Jesus' words and being concerned about the condition of their heart, those listening asked him the condition of the heart of those that perished. Instead, they were more concerned about whether bad things happened to other people because they couldn't look at themselves because it, it, for themselves, they were, uh, they were actually more curious about, uh, we are internally dreadful as well. And they perish. Does that mean that we'll perish? But Jesus confronts uh, them with this question. Do you think that they were worse sinners or more guilty because of what happened to them? Jesus turns it upside down on them by answering the question with an emphatic no. And the charge to them was this. And it wasn't a in your face. It was repent or you too will perish. Essentially, what he did was equate their belief about why bad things happen to people, i.e., are they in sin, to the actual condition of their own heart that they were actually sinners, that they were willfully rebelling against God in our heart. What Isaiah describes as a drawing near with their mouth, but their hearts are far from him. And then he gets to this and he tells this parable. We're going to read it again. Luke 13, 6 through 9. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for uh, for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should, I use, why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So here is a fig tree, which is a common tree in that day, that was seemingly growing, but for three years it did not produce fruit. We already learned that God's original purpose for man was to be fruitful and to subdue the earth. Uh, and, And so the God of Genesis 1 still hasn't changed his mind in Luke chapter 13. And we too, like the people of Israel in Jesus' day, we also fall into uh, this, this trap, this hamster wheel, the, this roundabout. We go round around this mountain, if you will, or, or go in circles, same story, different day of attempting to display the image of God or fulfilling the cultural mandate through appearances and actions while our hearts are far from him. We have a tendency today, like the Pharisees and teachers of the law in Jesus' day, to equate what we do and how we appear to godliness, to a remaining in him. But pay attention to where the fig tree is planted. The the, the tree is planted on good soil. The tree is growing and by implication, the vineyard is also growing, or this tree uh, is, is looking like it, it's flourishing, yet the tree is not producing the necessary fruit. Allow me to say to you that just because you have the appearance of growth does not mean that you are producing fruit. Therefore, simply defining fruit as maturity and growth fall short of what jesus is trying to teach here now i know that you're asking yourself how can the tree grow and yet not produce fruit because that was the question of the master i'm asking how can i be growing yet not be producing fruit it all points to a simple fact, and the fact is, is that this is not a seasonal thing. It's not because the tree isn't bearing fruit because uh, th- there was a drought or, or there wasn't enough rain that day or, or there wasn't enough nutrients in the soil because there wasn't enough rain. So it's not a seasonal thing, but rather it is a norm. For three years he's been coming by, checking for fruit, and there was none there. Pause, consider, Selah. What are the norms in your own life? What is the trap? What is, uh, what is the hamster wheel, the roundabout, the round and round the mountain you go, going in circles, the same story, different day? What is it the thing that you and your spouse or you and a friend or, or, or you with God are continually saying, man, I just need to hold on to that tighter. I just need to do that better. Is it an addiction? Is it a private sin? A a striving? A fear? An anxiety? Is it emotionally eating? Fill in the blank. Where are you holding appearances, but yet not remaining in Christ? You see, this, this idea of holding appearances and pretending and in and, and, and action and in word uh, and in deed even sometimes you're, you, you're, you're displaying this form of godliness. But when your heart is not remaining in Christ, this is what Drew Stedman in the gospel according to culture would define as cultural Christianity. And he says this. Cultural Christianity, behave according to God's commands or at least look like it. That uh, the accountability is primarily horizontal, the way others perceive you. Within the system, there's strong pressure to live morally and fulfill the appropriate spiritual and cultural obligations. Less emphasis is placed on what you actually believe or how it affects your heart. Translate, I can cheat. don't get caught. I can be an addict, say, to porn, as long as it is kept under control or not exposing anyone else to it. I I, I I can be a racist as long as I keep the comments within my tight circle of friends and not exposed to the public. I can be anxious as long as I can cope, or I can emotionally eat as long as I'm not gaining weight. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not telling you anything that I don't fall into. I go, go and, and, and fall into keeping appearances and, uh, and actions too. So much so that I have my own notebook that I have titled hashtag things my wife says. <laughs> As a caveat, let me say this. I've already cleared it with her, so don't worry. Like, I'm not saying anything that she hasn't said. Go for it, honey. Go, do it. You see... We, we love each other a lot, okay? And she said, hey, I just want you to make sure that you tell them. And, and, and this is true. We love each other. We are like the best of friends. We really are. But years, <laughs> two through seven of our marriage, they were, they were tough. To the point where uh, it was primarily because I was falling into my own trap of going in this hamster wheel, in this roundabout, round and round the mountain, here we go, where I was emotionally eating, where I was doing just enough, where I was striving while my heart was far from what the Lord was asking me to do. Now, one thing you need to know about Lauren is that she's a straight shooter, Okay, she, she will tell you like it is, um, and, and, and so I, I, I hope to one day be like her in that, and here are some things that the Lord used Lauren to uh, say to me when I entered into my own trap of appearances and, and actions. Ready? Here we go. I need to get ready for this. Uh, so when I was emotionally eating but saying that I was consistently working out, she says, hey, listen, I'm not calling you fat. You're just not fit. When, when I was striving and while, as I was trying to juggle too many things and I, I was thinking that I was hitting the ball out the ballpark, she says, Johnny, excellence is a mindset, one of which you, you emphasize, do not have. You see, as, as she was uh, saying this at the time, it cut to the heart. And honestly, I know that the Bible says uh, that love does not keep a record of wrong. But the whole reason why I even created this notebook in the first place is to keep the record of wrong. <laughs> Let me be honest. But the Lord has used that in such a way that now I look back and I'm saying, man, God, you use my wife in such a way that, yes, it, it cut me at the time. But now I'm looking back and I'm saying, look. What the Lord has done. That so much, like, like as we were talking about this, uh, this is not just for me. As I was telling her about this, she, she goes, you know what? Man, the Lord is good in this. She goes, I've not compromised in being a straight shooter. I've just grown in my ability to show grace. And it was something that both of us were able to rejoice in and pray and just thank the Lord in because she has grown in grace. And she's amazing. I'll, uh, anyway. I can keep going about that. But, but I, I say all that to say that, that we fall into these appearances and, and we fall into these actions while our hearts are far from God to the point uh, that uh, George Eldon Ladd in the Gospel of the Kingdom says this, the modern man is, is usually quite casual about his religion. He will often undertake radical measures in the pursuit of wealth, success, power, But he is unwilling to become deeply moved about the concerns of his soul. Jesus says that such a man cannot know the life of the kingdom. It demands a response, a radical decision, an enthusiastic reception. Nominalism is the curse of modern Western Christianity. Jesus' disciples must be radicals in their unqualified enthusiasm for the life of God's kingdom. You see, I'd like to believe that and and pray and think and hope that the soil here at Antioch, Dallas is good soil. Yet no one here is going to pretend like Antioch, Dallas is what's going to cause the fruit to grow. Why? Because the power that produces fruit is Christ. The power that produces fruit in Christ. And a true discipleship, Jesus defines it in in John chapter 15, verse 5, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, the fulfillment of the cultural mandate. And then he says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. So, so we remain in him, and I in you, uh, and, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, we can do nothing. That is true discipleship. So look at me. If the reason why you are coming to church is to act right and keep up an appearance that you learned as a child uh, without abiding in Christ, it's a hobby, And it's not any different than you spending time hunting, fishing, juggling, or making jewelry. No offense, James Avery. Look at me. I love you enough to tell you that you need to find another hobby. Here at Antioch, Dallas, we have a right understanding of what the church ought to be or what discipleship is about. Yet I want to continually remind us and encourage us to remain in Christ so that our appearances match our heart and that our growth is accompanied by fruit. Allow me to get feisty for a little bit, okay? Because let's be honest. We all know what we ought to be doing. And this is not that kind of message where I'm coming to you and I'm saying, hey, the power to produce fruit is in praying and fasting and reading your Bible and memorizing scripture or practicing the spiritual disciplines. Those are great, but those are not the power that's going to produce fruit. The power, as we have said, to produce fruit is in Christ, a remaining in him an abiding in him that, uh, and, uh, with an understanding that apart from him, we can do nothing. So this is not me coming in and saying, I'm indicting you. But this is more of a pastoral concern that compels me to speak the truth in love. So I know what you're asking. How do I remain in Christ? Notice this. Let's look at the keeper of the vineyard to help us grow on how to remain in Christ. Verses uh, 8 and 9. He says, Sir, the keeper of the vineyard replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So what's the vine dresser's job? Anyone? The vine dresser's job is to dig and to fertilize. To dig and to fertilize. To dig and to fertilize. Who is the vine dresser? It's not you. It's not you. The vine dresser is coming to this master and here's Jesus coming in and saying, hey, let me dig and let me fertilize for one more year. I probably spent an inordinate amount of time learning what all a tree needs to grow for this sermon. So if you're you're, uh, thinking about planting a tree or you have planted a tree and you're saying it's not growing or how do I make this thing grow? Let me enlighten you because I got the answer. You see, a tree needs sunlight, it needs air in the form of CO2, it needs water, and it it needs nutrients from the soil to grow. And what this vine dresser is proposing to do to this tree is what is commonly referred to as drip line irrigation. How do I know that? Because I Googled it. And what drip line irrigation is, is that uh, this vine dresser is essentially saying, let me find the outer fringes of the branches of this tree. And I'm going to go to these outer fringes and I'm going to start digging holes eight to 10 inches deep into the ground. And I'm going to move around the outer edge and just dig, dig, dig and dig. And then after that, I'm going to take fertilizer and I'm going to go into every single one of those holes and I'm going to start putting fertilizer nutrients into the holes. And every hole starts putting the nutrients in it. And so what, the reason why it's called drip line irrigation is because when it starts raining, the water that comes off of the fringes of this uh, tree, off of the branches that are out on the fringes, starts falling onto the holes yeah, there's a, there's a graphic there. starts falling onto the holes, and as the water goes down onto those holes, it re- retains the nutrients of the fertilizer, goes deeper down into uh, the roots of this tree. The roots soak it up, go up the trunk, into the branches, and bam, you have fruit. A tree can't control what it's given to it. It can only have a willingness to receive what is given to it. It can only remain and subsequently bear fruit. As it is in the natural, so it is in the spiritual. I need the sun's light, (laughs) the spirit's air, the word's water, and prayer's nutrients to help me grow. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to get across? What do we do in order to allow the power of Jesus to produce fruit in us? The answer is actually already given in verses 3 and 5, where Jesus says, unless you repent. So what is it? It's repentance. And what is repentance? It's positioning yourself in such a way that allows you to be fertilized. Jesus is the only one with the power, the knowledge, and sight to be able to dig into the dark areas of your life where you're trying to appear and act as though uh, you are remaining in him. He doesn't just address the appearance or action. He addresses the root, the heart. And so living a life of repentance means that we have a willingness to go there. You know what I mean by Go there. It, it's, it's those areas in your life where you where God is shut out of. It's those areas in your life where you feel the conviction of, of, this, of the Spirit just working in them, but for whatever reason you're saying, "Not today, God." it's a uh, but instead uh, having a willingness to be fertilized means that it's it's not to appear and act as if we are repentant but a willingness to explore the areas he is revealing in us a trust that jesus is working for our good a positioning of ourselves to be fertilized it's being willing to turn away from self-preservation it's being willing to turn away from the pride, from not loving God with all that I am, from not loving, my neighbor, uh, 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 not loving my neighbor as myself, to not loving my wife as Christ loved the church. It's a turning away from provoking my children to anger. It's a turning away from not giving up my life for my friends. Because repentance literally means a change of mind. But it's not about individual plans. It's not about intentions, because we have the greatest intentions. It's not about intentions. It's not about beliefs, but a rather change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action towards God. The fracture that happened in Genesis 3, Jesus, uh, 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 put it another way, the fracture that happened in in Genesis 3, Jesus has now uh, created a bridge through his death, burial, and resurrection that we are now able to stand in right standing before God and enjoy and bask and rest in his presence because of what he accomplished, not because of what I've done. Therefore, salvation is by grace through faith. I, I get excited when I think about that because it's nothing that I've ever did. It's nothing that I would ever do. It's nothing that I have done, but it is, by, it is not by my own will, not by my own power, but it is by grace, Jesus' grace and faith in him. The kingdom is set right side up when we give up our false pretenses, our appearances and actions, and we remain in Christ Not a striving, but a remaining. We position ourselves to be fertilized. We're able to bask in his presence and receive from him, remain in him. And so we just notice how Jesus comes in and and through digging and fertilizing, he helps us grow. But notice this also. Notice the grace and the patience of the vine dresser. In verse 8, the vine dresser says this. He says, sir, leave it alone for one more year. This right here is the patient apprenticing of Jesus. It's Jesus' grace-filled response to our shortcomings. You see, the tension in this passage is, is that there is no resolution. Johnny, okay, uh, what happened in the fourth year? Did it grow? Did it not what happened? Was it cut down? Or uh, I, You're probably asking that, and the truth is that the Scripture doesn't, let us, doesn't tell us. What it does do is that it makes it clear that the vine dresser asked for one more year. Jesus is in constant, patient pursuit of your heart. And to, so much so, I, I'll say this. Donnie, uh, whenever he asked me what I was preaching on this Sunday... And I told him and I explained to him, this is via text message. He replied back and he goes, it reminds me of this song. And he sends me Johnny Cash's, God's going to cut you down. (laughs) But that's actually not what Jesus is doing here. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter makes it clear. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's his patient apprenticing. Not keeping up these false pretenses, but remaining in him and allowing him to be the one to dig and to fertilize in our lives. So as we go into the fall, as, you, as, as, as we leave even today, I have some questions and and this is, I'm just going to get down here. And the reason that I'm getting down here is not to get your attention in some preaching way, but it's just to be able to show you we're all in this together. I fall into these pretenses and into these appearances and actions that as I started putting this message together and as I'm, I'm praying and saying, Lord, what is it that all of a sudden these questions started coming up and I had to do my own inventory. So here are the questions that I want you to leave with, and if you can take a picture or whatever, or I can, you can email me, I can send these out to you. But, but the first one is this, what is the ecosystem that will allow you to continually remain in Christ? The reason why I use ecosystem is because every tree is planted in an ecosystem. There's something that is allowing it to grow, that, or, or rather, let me, not allowing it to grow, but rather encouraging it to grow. What is that ecosystem? Is it, is it serving within our church? Is it uh, taking a walk through nature? Is it daily scripture habits, knowing that you're not going to do that on a daily basis? But it still, it still stirs your affections for the Lord. You know what it is for me? It honestly is uh, uh, doing yard work. Yes. And it's also cooking for my family. Those are the things that stir my affection for the Lord. Those are the things that will, that, that, that uh, the ecosystem around me that will allow me to continually remain in Christ. <laughs> what is the one thing that you and your, your friend or spouse or significant other need to sit across the table from one another and repent of? What are the thoughts and emotions towards others, your children, your spouse, your friends where you need Jesus to dig and fertilize to respond with grace and love. You know what that is for me this week? For whatever reason, our, our, our son Knox decided that he was gonna stay up till three in the morning and then wake up at six in the morning. It's coming, and, it, and you know what? It hits hard against my comfort idol. You're, 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 you're making me d- uncomfortable. But this is, and, the, and listen, I, well, I won't say that, but the thoughts and emotions towards him I need to repent of. Where are you striving and not remaining in Christ? What, what stirs you, a hunger for God in you? What keeps you hungry for him? What stirs this hunger? I just want to continually remain hungry for him. I want to continually remain in him and, and just soak up the fertilizer. I want to be able to, to just, just remain in him in such a way that those holes that he's digging in me to call me to repentance and to make me more like him. I just want to be hungry for those things, Lord. Make me hungry for those things. So here's my encouragement. It's, it's remain in him. It's it's repent. It's position yourself to be fertilized. C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Guys, I don't want to be far too easily pleased. I want to be hungry and go after remaining in Christ and allowing him to do the work in me in order uh, that, that I am godly, not from a sense of appearance or action, but just because I am now a his child and I am being conformed more into his image. Don't be far too easily pleased to simply grow and not bear fruit. But instead, fulfill the cultural mandate. Remain in Him. Repent. Position yourself to be fertilized so that the power of Christ will cause you to be fruitful. A remaining in Him. So, you may be in here today and you're saying, Johnny, this is the first time I've actually even heard of Jesus. As so a friend, I just want to tell you that. In Jesus, the reason why we gather is because in him, we find a right standing before God. And there's a relationship that is able, that that has been restored because he came. He lived a sinless life and he died and he resurrected from that death. And because he resurrected, we are now able to remain in him and abide in him and enjoy right relationship with him. What he intended from the very beginning is now what we get to experience because of what Christ has done on the cross. And he did it not because he had to, but he did it because he loved you. And so if you're in here today and you're saying, hey, I want to follow this Jesus with every eye closed and every head bow. I want to know if there's anyone in here that is saying, I want to follow Jesus. And if that's you, I would like for you to just raise your hand right there where you're at. This is not going to be a call for you to come to the front. I just want to see your hand and see if that's you. Church, if you would just pray this prayer with me, say, dear Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I surrender my life to you. Give me the power to live for you and remain in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna move into a time of communion. And today, I just wanna call special attention to this portion because the reason why we do communion is because we've been invited to a table to remind ourselves that it is because of Christ's broken body and his shed blood that we have the ability to remain in him in the first place. So when you take of this bread and you take of this cup, remember that you have the ability to remain in him. Don't let this time pass in vain. So with that said, I wanna call the communion servers up and church, whenever you are ready, I would like for you to come and partake of the Lord's Supper.
1: For the Lamb had conquered death, and the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe. For the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored.